When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Human Circus. It's still dark when the Emperor wakes up. The eunuchs of the night drum room would have sounded their drum first at nightfall, then again a while later, once at midnight, once more before the sun, and would do so again at dawn. Yong Le wakes up with the fourth drum in the pre-dawn morning. Around him, the many workers upon which the palace machine depend are buzzing into motion. Some are operating the water clock, others lighting the lanterns, a few collecting the emperor's fluids, more preparing his bath and breakfast. After he bathes, the emperor pulls on sandals and sits while his beard and hair are dried and combed. After he bathes, the emperor pulls on sandals and sits while his hair and beard are dried and combed. Outside, it is cold and wintry, but not there in his chamber, warmed as it is by wood and charcoal. He eats his morning meal and has tea. Then he is dressed in a robe, shawl, and shoes. Dawn is breaking and the palace is becoming busier as he strides out to attend to the business of the day. The director of ceremony is there in his red robe, and so is his assistant. Guards are taking their posts. The various seal-bearers are there, with the many different seals for this application or that. If the emperor is going somewhere, it will be in a yellow sedan. Its dozen eunuchs from the Directorate of Entourage Guards now standing ready. If you were to leave the palace grounds entirely, there is a chariot. Today, though, we know that he is not. He will be giving audiences this morning, and we, by way of Gyath al-Din, are there. The Emperor's civil officials are also there, all in rows. The military officers, too. A drum sounds, signaling the dawn, and a eunuch robed in red rings the attention whip. 
Voices joined, call out as one. Ten thousand blessings to his majesty. And the audience begins. Hello and welcome. My name is Devin, and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, the history podcast that crosses that world in the tracks of its travelers, its friars, merchants, crusaders, and liars. And it is a podcast with a Patreon, a place where you can support the podcast with a regular monthly amount of as little as a dollar, and listen to it earlier, more often, and ad-free. And you can do all of that at patreon.com forward slash human circus. This time, I want to especially thank the newest member of that Patreon, Mark Rubin. Thank you very much. And now, back to the story. The story of Giath al-Din Nakash. Last time, we talked a little about the backstory to the Ming-Timurid diplomatic encounter, and to Giath al-Din's personal encounter with the Yongle emperor himself. We talked about the journey overland from Herat, all the way to the region of present-day Beijing, then only recently made the Ming capital, the place where he and the others along for the embassy would have that imperial audience. Remember that the embassy was brought forward along with an assembly of accused criminals, perhaps an order of business with some intention to it. Remember that the emperor brought up horses. He was, as we talked about last time on the Patreon Extra, very interested in those. Remember that he brought up the roads they had traveled. I have read that he would often ask foreign visitors about the safety of the routes they had come by, though the example my source for that gives is actually the one in this Giath al-Din account. I trust, but cannot confirm, that they had other such examples in mind. As we finished up last time, Yongle was dismissing Giath al-Din and the other visitors acknowledging the long distance they had journeyed and sending them off to food and rest. That's where we pick the story back up. Food would arrive on trays, their contents unspecified in the text. But the rations that would follow them up on a daily basis during their stay would include sheep, goose, chickens, flour, rice, helva, honey, vinegar, onions, vegetables, and sweets. Along, Giathaldine wrote, with several beautiful servants. That, as you may have picked up on last time, was very much a thing he would notice and comment on. Rest was to be taken in an assigned chamber, with its assigned bed, bedding, and pillow, rugs, mats, and a chair. Silk slippers were provided, along with a bowl and a brazier. That was where they'd sleep for the night, though probably not yet. Not right away after that audience. It had, after all, only been dawn when that audience had begun, and they could only have waited for so long while Yongle allotted punishment. 
maybe they were given a bit of a tour. Giath al-Din does mention that there were certain people of the palace who would take them to see interesting places. He also mentions that the very next morning, those people came to their chamber to take them somewhere interesting. The emperor was putting on a feast for them, and Giath al-Din, as he sometimes would, slowed down, zoomed in, and took you and his readers back home into the scene in some detail. We're there with him at dawn, when the palace servants arrive with saddled horses. Rise and mount, they tell us, for the emperor is giving you a banquet. We follow them to the palace, and when they tell us to go use the washroom now, because there will not be another opportunity, we do take their advice. We wait at the gates where 300,000 people gather. When the gates open, we enter. There is a courtyard of cut stone, and beyond it, a long hall, sixty cubits long, and at the end, a dais, more than head high, with silver steps leading up to it on three sides. Atop that tall dais structure is a smaller one, all that wood lacquered in a shade of turmeric, and Giath al-Din is, not for the first time on this trip, impressed with the display of craft and artistry, doubting that even the most accomplished craftsman of Iraq or Khorasan would be its equal. Beside the dais are incense burners and two chamberlains who stand, their mouths covered with what this translation refers to as papier-mâché. And atop that dais sits a chair of many legs under a yellow silk canopy, painted with intertwined dragons. The Timurid envoys take their places to its left. There are bodyguards near them, with sword, shield, quiver, and, presumably, bow. There are soldiers, some with halberds, and others with naked swords. Just outside the hall stand 200,000 arms-bearers, some necessarily less just outside than others. Back inside, a cord is pulled at two ends, a curtain drawn, and through the door comes the emperor to the playing of many instruments. As he sits, the musicians go silent. Giath al-Din and the others are called forward to bow three times, and do so. Food is brought then, young Le's prepared behind a yellow silk enclosure nearby. It comes first on trays of sweets and other foods, or figurines, for the emperor. And when they are brought, the musicians play and the seven-colored parasols before his dais were spun. Trays are brought to all, their number according to the honor of the diner. Three trays for one of great honor, Giath al-Din says, two for less, less still for one. By his estimate, one thousand of them being served that day. On them, 
become wine of rice, more grain, or other beverages, along with lamb, goose, chicken, and a variety of other foods. With them come performers and singers, boys and girls who Gyathaldin compares to shining suns, all red and white rub faces, gold-spun clothes and pearls, dancing with flowers of paper and silk in their hands. Next come boys who leap forward with long sticks, turning flips, performing an acrobatic routine with a bundle of reeds that culminates in one of them seeming to fall from his trick, and then the other leaping up from the floor and catching him. There are rows of musicians who perform too, and perform is again the key word, each reaching across to play the instrument of the person to their side, while they continue to blow into their own. There is much to be enjoyed about the occasion, for visiting ambassadors and local birds, for the doves, pigeons, ravens, and crows who crowd in even before the people leave, showing no fear or hesitation whatsoever as they swoop into the open courtyard to scavenge out a feast of their own, a kind of charming little detail for Gyathaldin to include. It is, all in all, quite an event, an impressive display of imperial luxury. Quite an evening, one might say. Except that it was not actually the evening at all, no matter how much you might have pictured that for a scene of this sort. You get a lot of feasting and celebrating done when you start at dawn, and that was exactly what they'd done. Finishing up the festivities at noon, when Yong Le distributed money to the performers and gave those assembled permission to disperse. Given that they'd been eating and drinking since shortly after sunrise, without the relief of the washroom, that permission was probably very welcome. The Timurids left Yong Le's presence, very possibly retiring to their chambers to lie down for a bit. It would not be their final feast there in that place. There would often be banquets, and the performers would ever have new tricks and acrobatics to astonish them with. There would be banqueting still to come, and there would be other matters to catch Gyathaldin's eye. A week after that welcoming feast, it was the punishment of criminals that drew his attention. Maybe all that time waiting for Yongle to deal with sentencing on their first morning had piqued his curiosity. And I guess it was also the sort of point of cultural difference that you might write about when telling the people back home what you'd seen. In this case, it's not totally clear whether Gyathaldin went off and watched the whole thing. Or maybe just talked it over with people of the palace and got a sense of how it was all meant to work. Those involved were taken to the place of execution, their crimes recorded in the registry. For each crime, Gyathaldin writes, there was a fixed punishment, but the outcome, it seems, did not really vary. Not for those on that day. Decapitation, Hanging, 
chopped to pieces. Our observer only heard about the capital punishments. While there does seem to have been a lot of execution is the answer style justice going on in the report, Yeseldine does also note that there was an abundance of caution to ensure it was not, by the Empire's terms, wrongly done. He says that unanimity among the relevant ministries was required, and that if there was a relevant witness, even if they lived at a six-month distance, the execution was delayed until they could be summoned. However, the accused was imprisoned during that whole time, and cold weather could kill them then, even if the executioners would not get to. It happened during the Timurids' stay there, and Giath al-Din was told that on one occasion, more than 10,000 people had died of cold. Whether those 10,000 were all accused criminals is not totally clear, though from the context, it does appear that way. On January the 28th, it was New Year's, and the ambassadors were reminded not to wear white, for that was only for funerals. They were sent for at midnight, and everywhere they saw the shops and houses were lit with lantern, candle, and torch, so that it seemed the sun itself had risen in the city. They were brought to a place that had just recently been completed after 19 years of work. And it was good work, Giath noted. Masterful, even. Enough for him to comment that the stonecutters, carpenters, painters, and tile-makers of the region were simply unmatched. It was the sort of thing he gave attention to in his writing, along with the beauty of people and the rituals and ceremonies of the imperial palace. He would write of how Yong Le would stay in seclusion on particular occasions, when he abstained from meat, company, and the presence of distracting images. How on the day the emperor emerged from such a retreat, he was circled by ornamented elephants with seven colored banners all around him. 50,000 men, before and behind. They played instruments in such a way that it could not be described. There would be mentions of Yong Le's religious practices, such as this moment of cleansing seclusion, in which, Giathaldin says, he worshipped the God of Heaven. There would also be a brief but interesting reference to Giath al-Din's own religion, with the note that at Eid al-Adah, the Timurids, along with other Muslims, went to the mosque the emperor had ordered built in that city. If Giath al-Din was correct that this mosque had been constructed during the time of Yongle, then it was very far from being the oldest mosque there. For that was the New Ji, or Oxen Street Mosque, traditionally dated all the way back to 996. During that season was the Festival of Lanterns, and for a week, work was done outside the palace to build a structure of wood. They covered it with cypress branches so that it looked like a mountain of emerald, 
and hung tens of thousands of lanterns, all attached to a string. When the moment came, they would light rockets of naphtha that would race along the string and light all those lanterns at once. It sounds like quite the sight, but Giathaldin would not actually see it, and nor would anyone else on this occasion. For the astrologers had warned that the emperor's home would be damaged by fire, and they did not set off the rockets. Still, the people of the city lit their lanterns. Another great banquet was given, and when it was over, the emperor's edict was read as usual, with the Timurids having it translated for them, and Gyathaldin noting down the following. Quote, on the tenth of this month, three years have passed since the emperor's lantern night, and another lantern season has come. Prisoners, criminals, and others held by the ministry are to be released, for I have pardoned their offenses, except those who have shed blood. For three years, no emissary is to go anywhere. The decree was bound in yellow cord and carried off beneath the parasol. Copies would be made of it to be sent out through the empire. That last part about no emissaries going out was not quite what it sounded like. I'm assuming it was referring only to the Ming emissaries themselves, for Giathaldin and the others would not be detained for three years. They would be free to go. But not just yet. There was more for them to see in the Imperial City. And after this quick break, we'll see it with them. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. To a large extent, Giathaldin's reporting concerned interactions within highly structured circumstances. His encounters with Yong Le were, as these things tended to go, very much determined by the ceremonies they were part of, formal occasions playing out along lines that the travelers' hosts guided them through. Now, though, as the embassy spent a bit more time in the imperial city, there was going to be an interaction or two that stretched outside those formalities to seem, for better or worse, more natural. In March, the emperor called the envoys to him, telling them he would give a falcon to any who had given him a good horse. He did care about a good horse. And to three of them, he gave three falcons each, which maybe meant... He thought they had given him very good horses indeed, if perhaps three falcons was anything like three trays in significance. 
For another of the envoys, he said there would be no falcons, because they'd just be taken from him when he got home. To this, the Timurid protested that if the emperor were to be so gracious as to give him a falcon, then no one would take it from him. Yang Le told him to wait. He'd give him two falcons. Not three, though. It was the season of hunting, then, and the emperor announced his departure for that purpose, telling the envoys to make use of their falcons if they had nothing to do, and also taking a bit of a jab, maybe a friendly one, maybe more belligerent, saying that they had given him short horses, but he had given them fine falcons. So there the Timurid ambassadors were, not invited along, which was fine, and maybe with not all that much to do, maybe happy to have not all that much to do. It is nice to get some blank spots on the schedule. But this little break from their duties, from the cycle of ceremonies and events that surrounded the emperor when he was ensconced in his palace, this break would be suddenly interrupted. The first they heard of it seemed innocent enough. The emperor was returning from the hunt and required that they go meet him. But when they made to depart, when they were mounting horses at the post house, they saw Maulana Yusuf Kazi, the man who had directed them in that first audience with Yongla on that first day of their visit. And Maulana was looking sad. Why so sad? they asked him. And he explained, the horse that his majesty Shah Rukh sent threw the emperor during the hunt. The emperor flew into a rage and commanded that the emissaries be taken in chains. Now, the emissaries were also looking sad. They were, understandably, disturbed at the prospect of being taken off in chains, and they set out to meet the emperor with some haste, reaching his camp by bin morning. I'm sure it was a stressful moment for Giath al-Din, so when his record immediately plunges into a description of that camp, I doubt that was very much on his mind just then. Still, he noted its earthen walls, armed men atop it, and the ditch they dug that earth from below. He noted the two gateways leading in, and the yellow silk tents and canopies. But he wasn't going in. Molana told them to wait there, outside the camp, while he went in and tried to defuse the situation. Obviously, Giath al-Din wasn't witness to how this went. He must have heard later probably from Maulana himself, but how it went, or at least how he was told that it went, was that Maulana, along with a few others, went to the ground before the emperor and implored him not to follow his anger. These people are innocent, they apparently insisted. They have no power to command their emperor to send a good horse. If you were to kill them, no harm would come to their emperor's dominions, 
But an emperor who was renowned for clemency would gain a reputation for cruelty and tyranny. People would say that he has inflicted harm upon emissaries whose captivity or imprisonment is licit in no region. Whatever they said, Yongle was convinced, or at least calmed. He would not imprison the Timurids, and this was not a foregone conclusion. One often hears about the importance of respecting the sanctity of the ambassador, that this was the rule that would not be broken. But of course, it sometimes was. Timur had himself done so with Ming envoys, but that was in the past. Now, Molana rushed to assure the Timurid party that, quote, the emperor has been merciful and pardoned the crime that you did not commit. And then came the emperor himself, riding along on another horse that they'd brought with them, a good sign that he was perhaps not so very mad anymore. He was in a gold-spun tunic and a black silk hood, horsemen stretching out for a bowshot to his left and right. And as he pulled up and saw them there, bowing to the ground before him as directed, he called for them to mount up and to come along. Not that he'd entirely forgotten about the horse incident just yet. Presents, gifts, horses, and animals that rulers send each other should be good so that mutual affection may increase, he chided them. As an act of favor, I rode the horse you brought me during the hunt. But unfortunately, it was so old, it threw me and hurt my arm. How did one reply to such a thing? If you were Shadi Hawaja, Shah Rukh's own representative and the head of the Timurid embassy, if you were quick on your feet, you smoothly answered that the horse had been a memento from Timur himself, a favorite of his. So yes, it admittedly was old, but in a good way, one that conferred great value and honor, not one that showed you just didn't care enough to send something better, or that you had tried to pass off some tired, past-its-prime creature as something of quality. The whole story sounded a bit suspect. Like maybe, just maybe, Shadi Hawaja was lying here. But it was enough for Yongle. He praised the Timurid speaker. He did a little falconry, ascending one of his birds swooping after a crane. And he re-entered the city to the shouts and cheers of his people who had come out to greet him. The emperor seemed to accept the explanation then, and certainly, when they were summoned soon after to be given presents, he gave no sign of being unhappy, distributing silver, silk clothes, and also paper money, something that had been used in China since the Song Dynasty, whose 11th century jiaozi are generally thought to have been the first paper currency. He seemed happy enough with the Timurid's presence in his city. But that time was coming to an end. 
and a few things were going to happen to make him distinctly less happy, though neither had to do with Giathantin or the other Timurids. One of these was the fire. Remember the astrologist's predictions that had caused such understandable caution around the fireworks of the Lantern Festival. The concern was sufficient for copper cauldrons of water to be set out at the ready. Now, all those worries were going to be realized, as lightning struck one night in early May, causing flames to break out in the emperor's newly constructed palace, and then spread, engulfing 250 outbuildings, and many people with them. From night until noon, the fire could not be quenched. But though it struck at his own palace, the emperor paid it no attention. He could not, Giathaldin said, acknowledge such earthly affairs during one of his holy days. He could speak on it immediately after, though, crying out, The God of heaven is angry with me and has burned my throne room, although I have done nothing. I have not vexed my mother or father or done injustice to anyone. He promptly fell ill. Of sorrow, Gethaldine said, and he did have more than just the fire to feel sorrowful about. One of his wives had died. It was not clear to Gethaldine when, for it had only become known once arrangements for burial had been made. And once the burial had happened, it was not clear to him where and how for that was also the day of the fire, and with all the confusion and damage done, he was never able to find out. In the aftermath of these events, Yonglu's sickness grew, and his son took control, likely his son Zhu Gaoji, who would become the Hongxi Emperor in just a few years. It's not clear that the Timurids ever saw Yonglu again, if they did, there is no mention of it. He only says that at this time they were given permission to depart, and that in mid-May 1421 they left the imperial city. They had been there for roughly five months, long enough for many a morning banquet, more than a few state ceremonies. Nothing but praise for his host's mastery of craft and creation. And then that awkward moment when the Timurids were blamed for providing a defective horse to the emperor. On the return journey, they made use of the same post-house system that had sped them on their way there. Their names and number were checked against the registry of those who had arrived, and they were given wagons people, and pack animals to assist them, staying at a post station every day, and a town every week, banqueting before carrying on. It was not, let's be honest, the most punishingly difficult journey we have covered on this podcast, but it was also not a short one. It's about 3,000 miles, or 4,800 kilometers, between Herat and Beijing in a straight line, and all the aid of the post-house system 
could not make that a short trip for the unmotorized traveler, or, necessarily, a safe one. They spent a month in one place for fear of the roads ahead. At another, they opted for the desert for fear of the roads and security. A pretty damning indictment of those roads, I would say. By March 1422, they were out of the desert, and by June, in Kashgar. Finally, on August 28th, they, quote, reached Herat and attained the felicity of kissing the throne of his imperial majesty, Shah Rukh. All told, Giath al-Din and the others had been gone about two years and two months. It may seem that they had not, unavoidable difficulties of a multi-year medieval journey aside, faced the greatest of stakes. They did not go to beg or convince, seeking to win some great advantage in war or trade from the emperor's hand. There seems to have been a will on both sides of the diplomatic exchange to keep things friendly and to allow and encourage the continued flow of commerce and embassies. Giath al-Din and the others would not poison this particular well. And this may not seem a great accomplishment, but sometimes you just need to show up and not screw up. And that's good enough. Besides, the journey did produce the account on which these episodes are based, something I am ever thankful for with all these different topics. As ever, the text that resulted did not take a straight line in order to reach us, but it would reach us, carried in a number of 15th century chronicles, such as those of Abdel Razak. Samarkandi. Inside of two years from the embassy's return to Herat, Yonglu was dead, replaced by that son of his. Shah Rukh, a younger man by nearly two decades, would live longer, ruling until his death in 1447. As for our chronicler himself, there is mention of a Giath al-Din in other sources but there seems to be nothing to suggest it was the same one. For our Giath al-Din Nakash, we will leave him there in Herat, and we will leave this little series covering his journey from 15th century Herat to Beijing and back again. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back here soon with more Human Circus. Sooner if you're on the Patreon, where there'll be some bonus listening. And not long after, with the next main episode, as we start a new story. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you then. Human Circus will return.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.